March the 17th um, was the sermon from Jeremiah chapter 20 on the dark night of the soul. Uh, This time in Jeremiah's life when everything was wrong and everything was broken and it was just a very painful and terrible time for him. Back in December, we had no way of knowing that um, what we would walk through with Brian and Michelle through the um, pregnancy and the death of little Jack. Um, Recognizing that this was just very fresh yet, I asked Michelle if she would be willing to share her testimony, and she agreed to do that. Even though it's very difficult for her, she has agreed to do that. So while she's going up to the uh, platform, I'd like to just pray for her and for you to pray, lift her up with me. And so, Father, um, our sister Michelle now is going to share from her heart uh, the journey that she and Brian walked through in losing baby Jack. Uh, Father, it's very difficult to even comprehend what that's like to lose a child. But you know, Father, you lost your son, Jesus. And we pray that you would sustain her, that you would lift her up, that you would have angels literally standing beside her as she shares from her heart a message that is relevant for every one of us. Father, bless her now and use her words to bring hope and peace to all of those who are going through the dark night of the soul. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I can do this. (laughs) Let me tell you the story of my baby boy, Jack. At 12 weeks, Brian, Drew, and I went for our first ultrasound. We wanted to surprise Drew with his new brother or sister, but it didn't take long before we could tell that the ultrasound tech had found some issues. She kept getting quieter and quieter. She eventually excused herself and brought in a genetic doctor who quietly but matter-of-factly told us she believed that Jack had some kind of chromosomal issue and he wasn't developing correctly. Our dream of introducing Drew to his new sibling turned into a horrible nightmare. We were given some initial information regarding what the doctor thought was wrong with Jack and made an appointment to come back the following day to have some testing done on the placenta so we could see what was really going on. It was the worst 24 hours of my life. It's amazing what Satan can do to your mind in such a short time. Questions like, why me? Why us? Did I do something to cause this? And am am I being punished? Am I reaping what I sowed? A few days later, after the results came back from the placenta testing, we were told that Jack had a duplicating chromosome, that he would not develop correctly throughout the entire pregnancy, that his odds for survival were less than 1%, and that we may want to consider terminating the pregnancy. At home, Brian and I fell on our knees and we prayed about what God wanted us to do. All God kept saying to me is, stop trying to control everything. I've got this. I've got Jack. And you need to trust me. After talking things through, Brian and I decided that Jack was a gift to be treasured. He belonged to God from the moment he was created. 
And we would celebrate his life, no matter how short, with joy. Don't get me wrong. There were times that I still asked those questions, like, why us? And God would answer by saying, why not you? And I'd ask, did I do something to cause this? And God would say, does it matter? Can you fix it now? And he'd say, let me handle it. I'd ask, am I being punished? And God would say, are you listening to me or to Satan right now? Am I reaping what I sowed? And over and over, God would say, trust me. I have a plan in this. And if, even if you don't understand it, you need to trust me. So each day, one day at a time, that's what I'd focus on. Giving the glory to God. Working on trusting him. Relinquishing the entire situation to his control. Leaning on him. And when things got really hard, just praying, Lord, give me the strength when mine seems gone. On February 28th, we had to say goodbye to our baby boy for now. And I realized that although I have no idea what God's plan is, I do know he has one. I know that God's already answered so many prayers while we were pregnant. And I must never forget that he is the one in control during the dark times. I know that the trust that I've been able to put in him while carrying Jack is something I need to continue to rely on moving forward. And if I get out of his way and let him, God will handle it. Thank you. Thanks for that. Would you bow your heads with me for prayer? Lord, it's um, unimaginable to understand what Brian and Michelle have gone through. And for all of us, there have been times in our lives when we've been in that place of darkness without any answers. And so, Father, my prayer this morning is that as we open up your word and we look at this amazing passage in Jeremiah 20, that you would teach us uh, truth and that that truth would be that we put our absolute trust in you. Not in just what you can do, but we put our trust in you. We can't always see your hands at work, Father, but we can still trust your heart that you know what is best and that you will take every experience that we have and that it will be sifted through your loving hands and that you will make good come out of it. So, Father, we trust you today and we believe that you have a word for us today from Jeremiah. And my prayer is that you would open our hearts and that you would open our souls to receive this word. And by doing so, Father, we would be a people who have great faith and we have great joy because we serve a loving and a sovereign God. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So you're walking through life and things are not perfect, but they're good. There's a, a routine, 
a rhythm to your life that feels right. Um, You're trusting God. You're believing in Him and knowing that your life matters. You know that God is a gift to you and you to Him and that He is gracious and good. Your praises are heard every Sunday and many times throughout the week as well. And we even teach our children at home to pray at mealtime. God is great. God is good. And we believe it. It's not just a, a mantra, but it rings true in our soul. And then in an instant, without any warning, everything changes. You receive a phone call that there's been an accident. And your loved one is in the hospital just clinging to life. And at that moment, everything that mattered to you, everything that you were thinking about or planning on stops. And it stops cold. Nothing else matters except your loved one. Your doctor utters the word cancer. Or the doctor comes and talks to Brian and Michelle and says, the baby's not thriving, there's something wrong. In the middle of the night, the police knock at your door and your son is busted for drug possession. A military vehicle pulls up in front of your house and an officer and a chaplain get out and walk towards your house. They have news from Afghanistan and it's not good. You stand at a graveside in a fog and you think to yourself, what just happened? Your wife leaves a note saying she wants a divorce. There's somebody else that she's fallen in love with. So where is God in these moments? Why did it happen? And very realistically, why did it happen to me? Where is my good and gracious God in the darkness? To use the words of the psalmist, in the dark night of my soul. Where is God? In one of the Psalms, Psalm 22, King David was being pursued by Saul and was trying to be destroyed literally by Saul. And as he was hiding and as he was praying, he said, God, what's going on? And in one of the beautiful prayers that we have in Psalm 22, in fact, it's such a poignant prayer that Jesus used the exact same prayer when he was on the cross dying. And we hear David cry out to the Father these words, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far away when I groan for help? Every day I call to you, my God, but you do not answer. Every night you hear my voice, but I find no relief. David's friends heard his prayer and they thought he was a great man of faith and so they made fun of him. And we read these words in verses 8 and 9. Is, the one who rely, is this the one who relies on the Lord? They were making fun of David. Then let the Lord save him. If the Lord loves him so much, let the Lord rescue him. How is it possible that David or Brian and Michelle or you or me or even Jesus on the cross felt abandoned by God? The dark night of the soul indeed. One of the songs that Ryan taught us, and we're going to sing it again after the message, is from Psalm 30. 
And its weeping may last through the night, but joy comes in the morning. But for many, we ask, how long is the light night going to last? When is that joy in the morning going to happen to me? Because it hasn't happened yet. And we wait. Jeremiah experienced a dark night of the soul. As you know from our past messages, Jeremiah had faithfully proclaimed the God of Israel. And he had told the Israelites to turn away from the God of Asherah and Baal, turn away from the Persian gods, turn away from all of the Egyptian gods and, and trust in Jehovah God, the one and true, one true God. Trust in him. And so the nation of Israel under King Josiah kind of re, revamped and they rebuilt the city and there was reformation and good things were happening. And they were going into the temple and saying, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Everything was good and great and religious, and, but God knew that their hearts were still far from God. And so they were still chasing after the God of the Assyrians. They were still chasing the scarecrow, chasing the idols. And, and God said, Jeremiah, you have to speak to them again because their hearts are far from me. And so Jeremiah stands up before the whole multitude of, Israelite, of the Israelites and he spoke to them this powerful message. And when the message was over, everything fell apart. Now these were the words that God told Jeremiah to tell the Israelites. And listen to what happened when he was done with his sermon. Now, there was a, a temple priest. His name was Pesher. And he was kind of like the prophecy police, I would assume. But listen to what happened in chapter 20 of Jeremiah. Now, Pesher, son of Immer, the priest in charge of the temple of the Lord, heard what Jeremiah was prophesying. So he arrested Jeremiah, the prophet, and had him whipped and put in stocks at the Benjamin gate of the Lord's temple. And Jeremiah is going, are you kidding me? God, you told me to give this message to the Israelites. You told me to be a voice in the wilderness. You told me to tell them to follow Jehovah, and not follow the other gods of Egypt and Assyria. You told me that. And this is how I'm rewarded. And so you can understand when Jeremiah began to complain a little bit to the Lord. Listen to what he says. Oh, Lord, you misled me. And I allowed myself to be misled. He said, it's on, it's, it's on me. You know, the joke's on me. God, you told me to do this and look what happened to me. Jeremiah goes on, you are stronger than me than I am. And you overpowered me. Now I am mocked every day. Everyone laughs at me. When I speak, the words burst out. Violence and destruction, I shout. So these messages from the Lord have made me a household joke. But if I say I'll never mention the Lord or speak in his name, his word burns in my heart like a fire. It's like a fire in my bones. I'm worn out trying to hold it in. I can't do it. Jeremiah says, God, you've put me in this no-win situation. You told me to preach these words to the Israelites, and then I get thrown into jail and I'm tortured. And if I don't speak the words that you told me, that word is so alive in me, that, that word that you have given me is so real that I'll just simply explode. I, what am I supposed to do, God? The dark night of the soul. Suffering. Pain in the night. Author Kathleen Norris explains how Jeremiah's sufferings became the agonies of her soul. She writes, Opening oneself to a prophet as anguished as Jeremiah is painful. On some mornings, I found it impossible. The voice of Jeremiah is compelling, often in an overwhelmingly personal level. 
One morning I was so worn out by the emotional roller coaster of chapter 20 that after prayers I walked to my apartment and went back to bed, end quote. Have you ever experienced suffering so real, agony so overwhelming that you just simply pull the covers over your head? I remember the morning after our son Tyler was killed when he was 10 years old. Uh, Sherry had cried all night long and I tossed and turned and I tried to comfort her, but she was really disconsolate. She could not be comforted. And and I remember waking up in the morning just being angry. And God, why? I mean, of all the kids who aren't wanted in the world and treated like they're not worth anything, why take this 10-year-old boy? Why take Jack? That's a question we need to ask. Why? I don't get it. It doesn't make any sense. Trying to console Sherry, and I had nothing left in me. I just wanted to pull the covers over my head. Two weeks later... I went back to the office, not because I was ready to be a pastor again. I wasn't, but because I just had to get out of the house. I was so angry and so upset. And I went back into the office and the first call I got that Tuesday morning in my office, I picked up the phone and I was a young couple in our church and their baby had just died of SIDS. And when after after I told them I'd be down to the hospital right away and I hung up the phone, I said, God, are you kidding me? I'm not even done grieving the loss of my own son. How am I supposed to minister to this young family? The dark night of the soul is all around you. You just want to cover your head. You're in a fog. There's darkness everywhere. And the questions that are unanswered. Jeremiah's situation was dire. It's much much worse than the words that you read on the page. His questions were unanswered. He was beaten and thrown in stocks. Uh, basically, that translates from the Hebrew, he was thrashed and tortured. Stocks, the Hebrew word for stocks is mapiket, mapiket, and it means twisting. And what they did with Jeremiah is they put his feet in shackles, they put his hands on this end in shackles, and then they twisted him like a rag until there was almost no life left in him. And Jeremiah says, is this what I get for serving you, God? Is this what I get for giving the message that you gave to me? Jeremiah even asked, why was I ever born? I mean, we all ask this question. Why does he have to suffer? Why do I have to suffer? Questions in the night. The problem of pain and suffering, especially for the innocent, is what Philip Yancey calls the problem that never goes away. Yancey says further in his book about pain and suffering, that it's the question mark turned like a fish hook in the human heart. I mean, you can almost feel that. The question mark turned like a fish hook in the human heart. George Barna says in his research that the number one complaint that non-Christians have about God and Christianity, why is there pain and suffering in the world? If God is such a good God, if God loves me so much, then why is there this pain and suffering in the world? Jeremiah asked that question. The psalmist asked that question. Michelle asked that question. Sherry and I asked that. You asked that question. Why? Well, you know what? I wish I could give you an easy answer. I wish I could say, okay, here's the answer. Take this home and just rejoice in this. But I can't. Because the Bible is both mysterious and silent. On some of these issues. But I do want to mention something that will help you. I know it certainly helped me in my journey. 
And I want to make four statements or affirmations from God's word that will help us address this issue of why is there evil and suffering in the world, especially for the innocents. Part of this whole idea is this idea that we have come to believe in God. We've come to trust in God for what he can do. You know, we, we kind of see him as a, as a cosmic Santa Claus. We kind of expect that, well, if, I, if I'm a good boy, if I behave, if I go to church, give my tithe and all that, if I do that, then God's going to bless me and make everything go my way. Remember, we live in the kingdom of man. And this kingdom that we live in, this earth, this blue rock, is, is Satan is all over this place. And six billion people on this planet do not call on the name of God. And they do not call on the name of Jehovah. So we live in this broken, dilapidated world. And there is sin and there is brokenness. And so what happens so many times with Christians? We think that if we're good enough, that God will bless us with a happy, joyful, perfect life. There's no, nothing in the Bible that says that. It says, God says, I will not keep you from temptations and trials. I will take you through temptations and trials. Because we live in this little kingdom. We live in this little world that we call the kingdom of man. But God wants us to live in the kingdom of heaven. He wants to live us live in this big kingdom. We need to trust in God more than we trust in what God can do. Too many times we say, we're waiting around for God to do something instead of just, God, I trust your heart. I don't get it. It doesn't make sense to me. It's a mystery. But God, I absolutely trust your heart. That's what Michelle came to. I just have to trust him. I can't control this. I just have to trust him. So I want to share with you four affirmations about God that will help you in understanding this, this beautiful heart that we call the heart of our Heavenly Father. And the first statement is this. And it's simply, basically this. God exists. The Bible begins with the existence of God and points to God's ultimate victory over sin. And we're going to talk about that uh, a week from a Friday on Good Friday service. And, and on Easter Sunday, we're going to talk about God's victory over death and sin and hatred and all of that. We're going to talk about that. He promised I'll make all things new. So God exists. Now, this morning, I will not try and argue the existence of God. I mean, we'll do that another time because that's a wonderful, wonderful exercise. But instead, I want to approach this question of does God exist from a completely different approach. Okay, just bear with me. Let me make this statement. Listen carefully to this statement. What if I were to say that the presence of evil and unfairness and pain in the world is strong proof of the existence of God? Let me say that again. What if I were to say that the presence of evil and unfairness and pain in the world is a strong proof of the existence of God? Let me illustrate it this way. Why do you feel visceral pain and anger and outrage at the monstrous acts of terrorism on 9-11? Why do you feel kind of sick to your stomach when you see uh, something happens in the world that's terrible like Katrina or some of the other storms and you watch the looting on television? Why do you have this... The sick feeling in your stomach when you hear on the radio once again, there's another school shooting. Or the Holocaust. Or the selective abortion of, of, of females in China. Or child abuse or rape or the proliferation of pornography. Why do you feel outrage at the mention of these atrocities? I'll tell you why. Because it presupposes there's a difference between good and evil. 
And if there's a difference between good and evil, where on earth did that good come from? Why do you know instinctively that hurting a child is wrong? Or terrorism? Or selective abortion? Why is there a human standard of good and evil? Where did it come from? Because these, this is a standard of what good philosophers call this, the supreme good, which is just another name for God. Let me give you another example, a simpler example. Let's say um, your child comes home from school. Uh, she comes bouncing into the living room and she says, Mom, Dad, I got a, I got a 60 on my math test. And you go, what? Based on what? <laughs> because if you got a 60 out of 100, that's not so good. And that's, you shouldn't be bouncing around. But if it's 60 out of 60 or 60 out of 70, now that's good. And that's something to celebrate. It matters what the standard is. God has placed in every human being, even if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, God has placed in every human being the standard that there is a difference between something that is morally good and morally bad. And I suggest that that proves the existence of God. That proves the existence of a a supreme being. God says, I am in you. My value is in you as my creation, the supreme good. If you talk to somebody about, well, you know, this person is evil or that person is good or whatever... Everybody has kind of a a standard, a level. If you talk to somebody that's in prison and they say they may not have it, they may believe that uh, doing whatever they want to do, robbing a bank or everything is perfectly fine. But if you talk to them about hurting a child, well, that's below the line, right? They have a standard. Everybody has a standard of morality. Where did that come from? C.S. Lewis says it this way. If the universe is so bad, how on earth did human beings ever come to attribute it to the activity of a good and wise creator. God has placed this standard of good, this moral basis in each and every one of human beings. And that, I believe, the fact that there is evil in this world and we feel it, we sense it, that is proof that God exists. But that's just one statement. Statement number one, God exists and evil is a powerful proof of of its existence. Statement number two, God created us with a free will. Now, this is the, as you know, any of you who've done a little reading in theology, this is the classic defense of God against the problem of suffering and evil. The classic defense goes like this. It is not logically, and I'm going to use a double negative here, so stay with me. It is not logically possible to have free will and at the same time have no possibility of moral evil. Okay, let me say that again. It is not logically possible to have free will and at the same time have no possibility of moral evil. In other words, God did not create us as a puppet. God did not create us as a robot. Say, okay, I just want you to live your life and do good, do good, do good. Always do good, do God things, always. For God actually to have a creation that will love him and want him, he had to give that creation a free will. Jeremiah says to Israel, you have a free will. You can choose today who you're going to follow. You follow the God of Jehovah or you're going to follow the God of Assyrians. You're going to do it God's way or you're going to do it the world's way. You have a choice. But Jeremiah would say, and if he were here today, he would say the same. Jeremiah would say, but but choose carefully. Because which kingdom you choose to bend a knee to... (laughs) You choose to bend a knee to this the God of this world? You choose to bend a knee to this planet? Or you choose to bend the knee to God. 
be careful what you choose because that will determine how you live your life on earth and more importantly, it will determine how you live your life in eternity. Be careful which kingdom you choose to belong to. We have a free will. We better choose wisely. But, but let's look at some possible sources of evil. This is always a question with this, uh, with this idea. What are some possible sources of evil and suffering? Well, I believe there's three. There may be more. Um, you can talk about that in your grow groups this week. But um, I believe that the three sources of evil and suffering in the world are, number one, uh, because I make a decision to sin. I simply choose to have an affair or I choose to um, uh, be consumed with drugs or alcohol or I choose to lie or cheat or steal. I make those choices and as a result, my life simply falls apart. That's on my head. That's on my head. Nobody else has done that. That's on my head. So a great deal of sin and brokenness in our world is because we simply choose to sin. But there's a second reason, and that is this. Somebody else chooses to sin. Somebody else drinks too much, gets in a car, and they hit your car, and they kill a child. Somebody else has an affair, and it changes your life forever. The other source of sin in the world is there are other people, these, these people who are mentally unbalanced and spiritually vapid. They go on school campuses and they shoot children, and those children didn't do anything wrong because somebody else decides to sin. And a third reason for sin in this world is simply that we live in a broken world. We live in a world where there is sin and brokenness all around us. There is hatred and there is racism and there is greed and there is power. And it gets on us and it sticks to us and it's everywhere. It's a second statement about God is he created us with a free will. The third statement is this. God is all knowing. And I love this one. God is all knowing. We are the clay and he's the potter. We talked about that last week. If God is all-knowing, then he knows not only our present, but he knows our future. Jeremiah kind of forgot that. Now, the greatest example of this idea that God is all-knowing all knowing, and that he has a plan for us is what we would call deicide or, or the death of God. Now, in a couple of weeks, again, we're going to celebrate that, literally celebrate that. Think, think about that sentence for a moment. We're going to celebrate that on Good Friday. See, the worst possible thing, God in the flesh, hanging on the cross, being tortured, and about ready, literally praying, God, why have you forsaken me? And about ready to give up his spirit. The worst thing imaginable, we find, is that. And yet, somehow, someway, God changes that. Let me give you an example. Let's suppose that you, for a moment, are Satan. And you want to kill God, because God's always getting in your way, He's always trying to take people from you that you put your talons, your clutches into, and God wants to save them, and you want to damn them. And so you've got this, and you're saying, okay, how can I get to God? So, well, the only way I know to get to God is to go for his weakness, and the only weakness I know about God is this idea that he created man with a free will. It's the only weakness I know. That's the only mistake I think God made. Of course, it wasn't a mistake, but the devil thinks it was. And so all I have to do is kind of um, inspire a few agents, Caiaphas, Judas, Pilate, and then they're going to put Jesus on the cross, 
And he's going to say, God, why did you forsake me? And the whole world is going to be filled, filled with an earthquake. And it'll be terrible and awful. It'll be crying and screaming and wailing. It'll be the worst thing imaginable. And Satan will go, yes, I won. But at the very second that Satan thinks he's won, the death of God on the cross, everything changes. What looked like the ultimate tragedy was a complete and total victory. God sees the big picture. We don't. God saw, sees the big picture with Jack. We don't. God saw the big picture with our son Tyler. We don't. There's a wonderful verse, and you know this verse in Romans 8:28, that we know that God works for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. God promises that I will take something ugly and bad and terrible and broken and I'll make something good out of it. Don't forget, I'll always write the last chapter. Don't think your story is over. That's why, that's why um, suicide is such a, a bad thing because you decide that your story is over and you don't give a God a chance to redeem it. God says, I promise you, I will write the last story. What we need in these moments when we don't understand the big picture is we need God's eyesight. Now, on this planet, on the little kingdom, the best we can do is see 2020, right? It means we see pretty clearly. But in God's kingdom, there's another kind of eyesight. I, I, remi- I remind myself of this because it helps me remember. That kind of eyesight is 50-20, Okay. And the reason I say 50-20, a new kind of eyesight, is because there's a verse in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, that says this. Listen to this. Well, I'll, let me give you the back, background. So Joseph is beaten up by his brothers, thrown into a pit, left for dead. Egyptians come along, pick him up, some gypsies, take him off, and the brothers go, okay, that takes care of Joseph. Now, what are we going to do? We're going to now maybe dad will like us a little bit. Jacob will like us a little bit more. And so they're all happy about that. Well, years pass and Joseph takes that terrible circumstance that you say, how can you? That's the worst thing that could happen to somebody. Get thrown in a pit and be sold as a slave and all that. It's just the worst thing that could possibly happen. And you fast forward 30 or 40 years later. And what you find is Joseph standing in front of his brothers. His brothers are begging for some food. And this is what Joseph says to his brothers. You intended to do harm to me, but God intended it for good. Would you say that out loud with me? You intended to do harm to me, but God intended it for good. That's 50-20 vision. That's God's vision. That's not seeing the moment and recognizing the feeling in the moment and saying, thus it shall always be. Instead, recognizing that God promises and he does promise that he will always write the last chapter. Statement number three, God is all knowing. Statement number four, God is with us. Did you know the name Jehovah that was given to Moses on Mount Sinai? The name I am that I am, that name Yahweh, that name means literally I am with you. I am. The name of God is I am with you. In Psalm 34, 18, the psalmist declared, God is near the brokenhearted. God is near the brokenhearted. We started this message with the question from Jeremiah, where is God when I suffer? Where is God when I suffer? 
Where is God at 9-11? Or the school shootings? Or where is God in the death of a baby? Or a terrible accident where you lose a loved one? Where is God? Let me tell you where God is, because the Bible's clear on this. He is there with you, whispering the words of love and hope and peace. The Bible says that God enters into all of our suffering. Let me rephrase that. God enters into all of our suffering. The Hebrew word for that, the the verse in Isaiah 53, 4 says, Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. He took up our infirmities. The Hebrew word for took up means literally that God ate them. He took your pain, your infirmities, your suffering. It's like he rolled them all up in a ball and he ate them, tasted them, digested them, ate them completely. And then he died for your sins and for mine. He ate them. God promises I will be in the middle of every single pain. Every time you're in the little kingdom and you're struggling and you're suffering, I promise you that I will be with you. Suffering is not the last word. I promise you that I will write the last chapter of your book. He said, my name is I am that I am. I feel your pain. I know your pain. You know, one of the beautiful verses in the Bible is the first verse I learned as a child because it was the shortest verse in the Bible. What's the shortest verse in the Bible? Jesus wept. That's right. We learned it because it was easy. But that's one of the most powerful verses in the Bible. I'll tell you why. One of Jesus' close friends besides the disciples was Lazarus and Martha and Mary, brother and two sisters. And when he heard about Lazarus was dying and ultimately that he, he was dead, uh, the Bible says that Jesus wept. Now, what's interesting is Jesus knew he was going to resurrect him. <laughs> Jesus knew he was going to bring him back from dead. So you say, well, why was he weeping then? I'll tell you why he was weeping. He's, he was weeping for all of those who were weeping for Lazarus, for Mary, for Martha, for all of those who were missing him and losing him and not knowing what to do. Jesus promises, I will be with you in your sorrow. I will laugh with you and I will weep with you. God is near the brokenhearted. Brothers and sisters in Christ, if you are in the middle of the dark night of the soul, please hear God's promises. He said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Hold on to that promise. He will write the end of your story. I will never leave you nor forsake you. He says that he is the hound of every man. I will never let you go. You may try and release yourself from me. You might try and run away from me. But God says, I will never let you go. And here's another promise that he makes in Revelation. I will make all things new. That's his promise. I will make all things new. The psalmist declared in Psalm 18:28, The Lord, my God, lights up my darkness. Bow your heads, please, with me. The Lord, my God, lights up my darkness. Father, we are humbled. So often we are like Job when we stand up and we shake our fist like Jeremiah and say, why did you do that to me, God? Why? And yet you come to us gently, patiently, and whisper, you don't see the whole picture. You don't, you don't know the whole, the whole story. I'm going to finish that story for you. Just be patient. Trust in me. Don't trust just in the things I can do or don't do. Just trust in me. Trust in my heart. 
I promise you, you can trust my heart. I will always do what's best for you in the long term. And so, Father, as we ask this light to shine clearly in our hearts, that will cast away all darkness. And we pray, Father, that you would help us to see clearly with the eyes of God, not 2020 vision, but 5020 vision, that if something was intended for harm for us, you intended it for good. May we trust that and trust your heart, we pray. So, Father, thank you now. I, Lord, I just thank you for using Michelle's testimony to move us into this place of hearing your word so powerfully. And we pray that everyone here who is in the dark night of the soul would hang on to Jesus, for he will never let you go. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.